Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs, right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghana Mina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... ...inherent right to sovereignty. They get to exercise some degree of self-government as part of that. So it's self-determination and self-government is really the key outcome of any treaty. You look at kind of around the world, looking at modern treaties, particularly in Canada, where they're still being negotiated today. As many advocates and Indigenous leaders continue the push for treaty, an expert in constitutional law believes the no outcome of The Voice has cast government hesitation over treaty processes in some jurisdictions. So where is Australia at with its treaty processes and what can be gained from treaties internationally? Also, changes in the way people consume media, funding constraints and a drop in volunteering are all things the community radio sector is grappling with. So what does the sector's roadmap reveal about opportunities and challenges during the next decade? And later in the show... There's been COVID-19-related lockdown periods and, and of course, by virtue of the fact that Australia hasn't been in the market, we haven't been able to play that role in terms of trying to grow the wine category in China that perhaps we have had been able to do over the last couple of decades. The federal government announced on Sunday that China has agreed to a five-month review of Chinese tariffs on Australian wine. Could there be hope of reviving Australia's wine trade with China? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up... The following interview contains the name and story of a First Nations person who has passed away. Hundreds gathered in Borloo, Perth last night to call for the Unit 18 child prison to be abolished. The rally was led by the family of Cleveland Dodd, who died in the custody of the youth justice system last week. Noongar elder Uncle Ben Taylor Kumara gave the welcome to country at the rally and has been fighting for decades to end deaths in custody. The wise contributor from NADA Media, Jared Mazza, spoke with Uncle Ben before the rally. I want to talk about the latest death in custody of a 16-year-old child locked up in an adult prison with vicious outlaws, rapists, murderers. How did you feel when you heard the news about this, the young boy? Well, I was shocked, but I wasn't dismayed. I heard a lot about Bankshill, where the the kids are, under 18, but they were being violent in that Bankshill. For good reason, there was they were on lockdown. There was getting no exercise, educations. They were treated like dogs. Very racism was in there. You know, I was told by the parents of one kid. And then the riots started. They were rioting just for the fun of it because of the conditions and the way they were treated. They they came there with tactical response group. You might have saw it on a. TV and everything, holding guns at the heads and picking out all the real bad ones. Oh, they got a lot of them. And they put them up here to the National Security Jail at Casarina. And there, it's pretty vicious in that jail. They were warned. Get him out of there. You're going to break his spirit. How are you treating him? But they won't listen. That lockdown has turned him into a monster. He'll do anything to himself. When the spirit is broken, that's it. 
you know, you got no will to go on. I even get that way as an 84-year-old when I see my people being like that, you know. And for the, for the corrections services minister, Paul Papalier, whatever you call it, mm. to get up there and say we're doing all we can, and uh, he done nothing. He done nothing for those kids. They had intercoms in there, they'd, they'd be talking on there. They took no notice of that boy, because they took no notice until it was too late. And another thing, he should have been out on country where he came down from Kalgoorlie. They should have sent him back there to be with his mom there. They talk, talk longer. That's where he should have went. No, they bring him all the way down here to Perth, lock him up there where you know nobody. He can't talk to any countrymen. He should have been back on country. Uncle Ben... For the children who are still in Unit 18 and in Bankshire Hill, how would you like to see those children be treated? And do you think there are ways that we can do things differently? We need Aboriginal people to go in there from the Aboriginal, from the Noah Medical Group. And we've got Aboriginal guards in there. If they have, if they have got Aboriginal people working in prison, you don't hear from them. It's run by white fellas. But we got to have a voice in that prison. Have regular people and tell them this is what we want. Just how we want to talk to our people. That's the only way it's going to work. And we want more rehabilitation out there, education and everything, employment, you know? Schools in the outback, all around the city. In the outback, Northern Territory, all over Australia. We need to be a big change. For all my people, Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, who support us, stand with us. This land was never ceded. We'd never given it up. It was taken by the British. They had massacred us all over Australia. I got places in West Australia I go back to. We make a fire every year and we have a meeting, corroboree and everything. But support us in all the way you can. Because we're going to stand together, united. And, you know, for Aboriginal people, life is too short to have enemies. Our people are dying like flies over here. It's never-ending funerals. And I'm lucky to be 84. I gave up the alcohol cigarettes years ago. When the drinking rice came out, nearly killed me. I wasn't used to it. It turned me into an alcoholic. So, now drugs are coming in. That's getting worse. So, my people... Noongai elder Ben Taylor Kumara speaking with Nada Media's Jared Mazza. For those affected by the incident, crisis support for First Nations people is available. Phone 13 Yarn on 139276. As a number of First Nations communities end a week of silence following Australia's no vote to the referendum, many across the nation have turned their heads to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, its three requests stating voice, treaty and truth, with some activists and Indigenous leaders continuing the push for treaty. However, an expert in constitutional law believes the outcome of the referendum will have more of a negative impact on treaties, suggesting the voice's defeat has cast government hesitation over treaty processes 
Nations in some jurisdictions. In a move forward, where is Australia at with its treaty processes? What can be gained from treaties internationally and where does treaty fit in the context of First Nations communities? Dr Harry Hobbs, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology in Sydney, explains. Over the last few years, Every government except WA has committed to talking treaty with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. There are different stages and there are different levels of commitment, but they've all opened the door to to talking about treaty except Western Australia, yes. And what would a treaty mean in the context of First Nations communities? So it's hard to say in, in many respects, right? We haven't had a treaty before. We have no history of treaty making in Australia. We have no language to describe treaty relationships. And we really haven't got a settlement or an outcome that we can point to and say, this is what it will look like. A treaty is a political agreement reached through negotiation between equals. So it really is whatever the negotiating partners want to end up with and what they decide to agree to. That said, a treaty does include certain core or minimum functions, minimum responsibilities, minimum outcomes. One of those is the fact that uh, it recognises Aboriginal and Torres Islander peoples as possessing an inherent right to sovereignty. They get to exercise some degree of self-government as part of that. So it's self-determination and self-government is really the key outcome of any treaty. You look at kind of around the world, looking at modern treaties, particularly in Canada, where they're still being negotiated today, it ends up being akin to something like local government. So control over communities, control over education within the within the community, maybe the school might teach in the language of the Indigenous community. There's maybe more control over services. There's rights to citizenship, distinctive arrangements in certain other areas. Really, it's about giving Aboriginal communities the power to make decisions for themselves. That's the, that's the core of any treaty relationship. The voice to Parliament was a move by the federal government. The process surrounding treaty appears to be jurisdiction-led. Can you tell me why this is? So we live in a federation. And the constitution gives certain powers to the Commonwealth Parliament and certain powers to the states and territories. What that means essentially is that governments at the state level and governments at the federal level uh, both have the power to negotiate treaties with First Nations communities. Ideally, a treaty will be uh, completed with uh, on one side Aboriginal communities and the other side the federal government and the state governments because because of the allocation of power, there are certain things state governments can't agree to and certain things only the federal government can agree to. So ideally, you have both levels of government at the table. But at the moment, because we live in a federation, it means that different governments can make different policies and do different things at different speeds. Importantly, the state and territory treaty processes, they really got kick-started in around 2015, 2016, when a number of people were really frustrated by the slow progress of constitutional reform and constitutional recognition at a national level. And so some governments, particularly in Victoria, said, look, why do we need to wait for the Commonwealth to get going? You know, we can do this ourselves. So you mentioned that the treaty process began before the referendum. Are we seeing a resurgence of that discussion after the referendum, do you think? To be frank, the referendum has spooked a number of governments and a number of political parties. And you can see in places like Queensland and the Northern Territory and New South Wales, governments and opposition parties are a bit wavering, I suppose, in their commitment. They haven't been as clear or as strong on on the desire to pursue treaty talks. They've they've walked back a little bit. So the New South Wales government has said, look, this is going to be a long process. We'll see how it goes. We're not committing to anything until the next election, which will be three years from now. Uh, And you've seen in Queensland, the opposition party and the Northern Territory opposition party as well have both said, look, we're not really supporting treaty anymore. We did support it. We don't support it anymore. Referendum result has spooked a number of of parties. At the same time, it has galvanised others. And so you see Victoria saying, look, you know, we're committed to this and we're going to keep going. It's a little bit wait and see at this stage. What does international national law say about the process of treaty and what influence are treaties across the world having on different communities? 
It's a really good question because the treaty is not just a, a feel-good agreement that makes everyone feel happier and it you know, ends up with a positive sense, a better sense of nationhood and who we are. That's obviously one aim of a treaty. But the important thing is that a treaty has real uh, socioeconomic benefits for the communities that sign. You look at research from around the world, and the, the biggest study on this is a you know, multi-generational study out of Harvard, the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development. And that shows that the number one factor in improving socioeconomic outcomes in Indigenous communities is self-determination. So giving Indigenous communities the power to make decisions for their own lives. And a treaty is that process through which you can create self-determining. So a treaty internationally leads to better socioeconomic outcomes. It's more likely to help close the gap in that sense as well uh, in Australia. And South Australia, for example, has shifted in its commitment to treaty since Peter Melanouskas has come into government. It's back on the agenda. Earlier this year, South Australia passed a law to create a voice to uh, the South Australian Parliament. Would this impact a treaty process in any way? I think it would support a treaty process. You think again, you know, it's really hard for someone, a group like the Naranjeri, to negotiate a treaty with the South Australian government. Disparities in, in resources is very extreme, right? So you need to have some sort of way that Aboriginal communities can be certain or consistent or believe that the process will be fair and equitable for them and make sure that it kind of, you know, gives them the certainty that they want to take part of it. A representative body is exactly that. An Aboriginal representative body can work with government to design those institutions, design those processes to make sure that people believe the process is fair and equitable. Dr Harry Hobbs, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology in Sydney, speaking with me. Termed by an industry leader as an economic shock to the sector, the Chinese wine tariffs imposed in 2020 saw a major downward turn for an export market previously worth over $1 billion. But could there be new hope in reviving the market and rebuilding trade relations with China? In a major breakthrough, the federal government announced on Sunday that China has agreed to a five-month review of Chinese tariffs on Australian wine. CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, Lee McLean, says that while it's a very positive sign, there is still work to do. I spoke with Lee to find out more on what this review could indicate. It's a really positive step for Australian grape growers and winemakers after a a couple of very, very tough years. This review is the latest positive step in you know the relationship over the last year or 18 months or so. We've seen really steady up in political engagement between Australian and Chinese leaders. We've seen that start to filter into the business world and even for industry people as well, starting to reconnect with, with Chinese counterparts. It's a good sign for Australian grape growers and winemakers. What it means for us is that we will work through a process now. We have to provide some information to uh, the Australian and Chinese government and then the Chinese government goes away and has a look at the information we've provided. They look at the market in China and whether the import duties that are in place are fit for purpose. There's a bit of work to do and there's a bit of water to find at the bridge, but it is a very positive sign for us. And how confident are you that this could be the beginning of resuming trade relations with China for Australian wine? Yeah, it's a really important question. So I think the first thing is that we're we're optimistic, but we know that there is this process that we need to work through. We need to respect that process and not put the cart before the horse in terms of expecting an outcome. The Chinese government and the Australian government have done a good job to get to this point through dialogue to take a decision to undertake this review. But now the hard work begins of providing information and working with the Australian government to make sure it has all the information it needs as well in those those ongoing discussions with China over the next few months. And I guess on that note of remaining cautious, it is a five-month review. Should growers and producers start making any decisions? 
the timing is interesting, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. and quite difficult for some because for grape growers across the country, now is the time where people are making a lot of decisions about what they're doing in the vineyard, whether it's um, applying sprays or applying water or whatever it may be. And the same goes for, for winemakers in terms of vintage capacity and how much room they've got in tanks and the like. So the timing is something that businesses will have to consider. But what I do know is a lot of companies are already starting to re-engage with Chinese customers. That's been going on for probably six or eight months now where those relationships that really have been built up over 10 or 20 years and don't disappear over a couple of years uh, out of the market. I think I think companies, generally speaking, are, are working to re-establish those relationships and do a bit of preparation. But having said all of that, of course, that is an individual decision for each company. Some companies will go back into China with confidence. Others may seek to test the waters in a, in a different way or try to uh, find markets elsewhere around the globe. And can you take us back? The tariffs were imposed in 2020. Over the last three years, what impact have you seen these tariffs have on Australian grape growers and wine producers? It's been a really significant, what I would refer to as an economic shock to our sector. So China was by far and away our largest market. It was valued at its peak at about $1.2 or $1.3 billion in terms of the value of exports from Australia to that market. Today, the value of exports sits at just over $8 million. So it's something like a 99% reduction in the value of exports to that market. And to put the the sheer size of that market into context, while I said China was sitting at about $1.2 billion at that point, the next two biggest markets at that point in time were the US and the UK, and they were sitting at just under $500 million each. So it was more than double each of our sort of second and third largest market. There's no single market or collection of markets that we've found that are can replace what we lost in China. So there's been a lot of work to try to grow opportunities elsewhere around the world and indeed here at home as well. But the reality is when you have a shock like that, that does play out in commercial decision-making. Businesses around the country have had to make some really difficult decisions. Grape growers have seen very, very low prices for grapes a lot of the time, particularly red wine grapes. Indeed, some have been unable to find a contract. There are decisions being made right now about uh, people's future in the industry, which is really difficult. The challenging thing at the moment is that while China will be important if we can if we can get back into that market, it's not going to solve all of these problems. Those decisions are going to have to continue over a little while yet. And Australia, particularly SA, is so renowned for its wine. Previously, the value of Australian wine exports to China, you mentioned $1.2 or $1.3 billion. Do you think it will be a struggle to regain this figure? Yeah, it it, it will be. So I think it's fairly well understood across the industry that we're unlikely to get back to that peak of 1.2 or $1.3 billion. That's due to a couple of factors. So firstly, the market has changed in China. People are tending to drink less in China by volume, but they're still looking for higher value products. So there is a change in consumer preferences in, in China, but also there's been some other other issues playing out in the economy in China. They've had some strong economic growth, but at a slower rate than perhaps in previous years. There's been COVID-19 related lockdown periods. And, and of course, by virtue of the fact that Australia hasn't been in the market, we haven't been able to play that role in terms of trying to grow the wine category in China that perhaps we have had been able to do over the last couple of decades. There are few different factors at play. It's a little bit hard to unpick. What other opportunities do you hope for the Australian wine market after such a huge blow over the last three years? Is it important to continue to diversify? Absolutely. So regardless of whether this review ends up in a 
a resolution to this import duties issue, and we very much hope it does. But you know, regardless of the fact of whether we can sell wine to China again or not, we really do need to keep the foot of the accelerator in terms of the market diversification effort. We've done a lot over the last couple of years working with government, working with groups like Wine Australia and Austrade as well to try to do that. But the reality is this stuff takes time. Uh, it is a long and pretty hard process at times and it's not something that industry can do by itself. So we're hoping that over the next little while we can continue to work with government, with state and territory governments as well to get some investment to make sure that we're coordinated in our approach and find new opportunities around the world. CEO of Australian Grape and Wine, Lee McLean, speaking with me. Changes in the way people consume media, funding constraints and a drop in volunteering are all things the community radio sector is grappling with. This week, the sector released its roadmap for the next 10 years to make sure the sector remains sustainable. Leaders in the community media space say there are big opportunities but also challenges to overcome in the next decade. Reporter with National Radio News Amanda Kopp attended the launch. More than any other time, having community radio tell the story of what ordinary people think has never been more important. That's the message community broadcasters had at the launch event for the sector's 10-year roadmap. Sometimes seen as a minnow in the Australian media landscape, statistics show that community radio punches above its weight. Run by an army of volunteers, the sector contributes a quarter of a billion dollars to the economy each year. 4.7 million people tune in to over 500 community-owned and operated radio stations around the country each week. And half a million Australians listen to community radio. Listenership is particularly strong in multicultural communities, where many shows are broadcast in languages other than English, as well as First Nations communities, often in very remote areas where there are few, if any, other media. That's places like Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, Cape York in Queensland, and the Pilbara in Northern WA. And unlike many media organisations, almost 50% of listeners are under 40 years old. Speaking at the event held at Two Soir FM in Blacktown in Sydney's West, Community Broadcasting Association CEO John Bissett said the roadmap was about guiding the sector for the next decade. It's a, a community broadcasting document that's really going to guide us for the next 10 years. It's about how do we maintain relevance, how do we uh, engage our communities and how do we uh, become even more important and do even more um, in the media sector. The document was presented to the Minister for Communications, Michelle Rowland, who says the plan must translate into results and that requires stable funding. And stable funding for the sector means you can continue to support your local communities with news, emergency broadcasting and local content, including, of course, Australian music as well as post-natural disaster initiatives. In the last budget, the government locked in additional funding. However, negotiations are continuing with the sector. Our challenges are really, you know, ageing infrastructure, um, uh, particularly in First Nations uh, communities, but I think that's generally uh, across the entire sector. Uh, there's challenges around our business models, you know, certainly like all media, um, the sponsorship model is not working the way it used to work or the advertising model in commercial media is not working the way it used to 
to work. Um, but we have a huge advantage, and that is our communities and how do we work with our communities uh, to raise funds, to get greater engagement um, and to, to you know, strengthen those communities. Station manager at Sydney Youth Broadcaster 2SER, Paula Kruger, says many stations play a vital part in training up the next generation of media professionals. Community radio is basically the pipeline for the industry because when you're someone with no experience and uh, but a lot of passion and you know it's something you want to do, the hard thing is finding opportunity. So what community radio does is give people opportunity and help them figure out... Um, if this is actually something they want to do. Community Broadcasting President and Yorta Yorta man Ian Ham says First Nations stations are particularly important after the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And the importance of community broadcasting at its local level is to reinforce to us as a people, as a community, that we matter to ourselves if nobody else, that we are a thriving, living people, that we will see through this. We have lived on this continent for over 65,000 years we adapt to the environment that we find ourselves in. We will do it again after last Saturday. While speaking at the event, he went on to say how important local stations are for all communities. The role of community radio in making people feel that they belong, giving them an anchor that when the rest of the world goes to hell in a handcart, they can turn on their radio, their community radio, and hear from the people they live with. It gives voice to the unheard. It gives the possibility of contributing to where you are, of making a difference. National Radio News reporter Amanda Kopp. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide, with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.